Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. I'm here in San Antonio, Texas, with the retired Mass Surgeon David Long. Retired Mass Surgeon David Long served in the United States Army 101st Airborne Division from 97 to 2000. And in 2002, he re-enlisted in the United States Air Force into the aerospace propulsion. Throughout his career, he has filled positions as a heavy weapons gunner, squad leader, company armorer, jet engine mechanic, air advisor, photographer, and most recently, the first ever underwater photographer for Warrior Games Paralympic Swim Competition. So quite a career you have here, David. Tell me why did you join the Air Force? That's a traditional question I ask of everybody. So I originally joined the Air Force after I was out of the Army for a little bit because I wanted to try and become a PJ, actually. I went down and got indoctrinated into the Air Force, had my week class that I finished, and then I went to the pararescue training. And it went well, but I found that I was struggling with Every time they're talking about human anatomy and medical stuff and everything else, my brain wasn't there. I was distracted. I would rather be shooting or blowing up something. And after some quick self-reflection, I realized that, you know, as a prior infantry guy, yeah, it probably wasn't the best fit for me. So what did you decide to do then? So then I self-eliminated. And then I asked to be reclassed because I wanted to still stay in. So I opted to reclass. The Air Force came back and said, great, we'll match you with the job that was closest to your previous military experience. I figured I'd be a cop or TACP or EOD or something like that. And they came back with aerospace propulsion or jet engines. What is aerospace propulsion for those of us (laughs) who are not super familiar? So it's basically jet engines. I mean. It's a fancy term for just, you're a jet engine mechanic, but it was still fun. So you did that job. At some point you get deployed, you volunteer for 365 deployment, then you actually had a couple of deployments, yeah? So as a jet engine mechanic, I've had a couple, I guess you would say short TDY deployments. They were when I was at Langley with the first fighter wing, we would go to UAE or other obscure locations just as just so our F-15s at the time could get dissimilar air combat training and all that stuff. They weren't really extended times, but my big deployment was after I was, I had PCS to Lakenheath and I had volunteered for a 365 air advisory position teaching Afghans how to work on Russian helicopters. And so your troubles started around that time, yes? 
Yeah. So after I got accepted for the air advisory position, I went through all the training that was involved with that. And then I was back home getting ready. Everything was packing up. I was getting all my bags together, all my affairs in order to go downrange for a year. And my girlfriend at the time was there also hanging out at the house. And it wasn't a phone call. It was some, I think I had Skype at the time. So I had some weird Skype phone message coming in from my sister saying, hey, grandpa, who was previously Army, Army Air Corps and Air Force, he was starting to pass away. So can you get back home and see him and stuff like that? Your sister's in the United States. I'm so Yeah, my sister was back in Nebraska at the time with them. And in a way, I was kind of thankful that it was happening then because I knew he was my grandfather. And if I was deployed, being deployed, he wasn't an immediate family caregiver. So if I was deployed, I would not have been able to go back home and see him. So in a way, I was thankful that this time was happening now so I could be there for it and help him see him on. So that same night I got the phone call, I somehow miraculously got the cheapest flight out of the UK to Omaha, Nebraska, and started repacking bags for a quick trip back home to see my grandfather off. And at that same point, my girlfriend kind of took things a little difficult because now our time was cut even a little bit shorter. So in the process of me packing and ripping my deployment bags apart and moving stuff everywhere, she decided to take out a couple of the knives that I had packed for the deployment and decided to start cutting her wrists. It was weird. It was awkward. Yeah. I, <laughs> what do you mean by that? It was something from a movie. It was, it was like, what is going on here? Yeah. I was like, are you serious? This is actually happening right now. While I'm actually trying to go back home and deal with my family and my grandpa transitioning on and all this other stuff. And you're pulling this on me now. It's kind of like, yeah, it threw me for quite a loop. So she attempted suicide? Yeah. So she had her, I think it was her left wrist cut, and I wound up unpacking my medical kit that I already had packed because, again, being a prior infantry guy, I always plan for the worst. So I always bring extra medical stuff. I always I always take extra ammo into a fight. I take extra water. I mean, that's just the way I'm wired. So I had this pre-made medical kit already ready for me before I even got downrange. And I'm ripping everything out of that and bandaging her wrists. And then after I get the bleeding to stop and everything, and it's stable, she's stable and she's calmed down and I'm a little calmer. I actually make a phone call to my boss at the time. Ed Lake and Heath. And I'm like, Hey, what do I do? Cause I'm a U.S. citizen in England and I'm dating someone that's from a different country that's working in England. And what do I do here? Like this wasn't in any CBTs. This wasn't in any training. This wasn't in any briefs. This was nothing. And he was, I could literally almost feel him over the phone, scratching his head. Like what is going on? Like he didn't even understand. Finally, we Decided, yeah, best thing is call 999, which is their emergency services in England. And for the next almost 40 minutes, 
I sat there and tried to hold her back from that deep, dark side and just it was the most draining, the most mentally tough thing I've ever had to do. It was tough. I look back at it sometimes now and I'm just like, how the heck did I do it? I, I don't even understand how I did it. But I stayed there. I kept talking to her. I kept her engaged. My biggest thing was I didn't want her to slump off and shrug me off and just, okay, well, whatever, and then go down the dark path again. So after that 40 minutes of helping her cling to the to life or cling to the light side mentally, the medical services showed up. They took her to the hospital and everything. And by this time, it's like 2 a.m. in the morning and my flight leaves from London at like 6 a.m. <laughs> and yeah, they, they get her to the hospital. She hit me up with a text later saying, I'm okay, I'm here, I'm getting some help. And they're working this and whatever. And I was like, okay, I can take care of me now and finish packing and try and run home and take care of my grandpa who's passing away now. Yeah, so <laughs> that's where that night went. Did you ever have a chance to make sense out of these two events happening simultaneously? It's interesting you say that. I have thought about that. You know, what was the lesson learned or what was the sense that could be made from this? And to this date, I still scratch my head to it. I don't know. Maybe in a few years, we'll see. My grandfather, I did make it back in time. It was amazing because I saw him and it was almost like he was just waiting, holding on enough for me to get there. And then he passed on the next day. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Hmm. And then that was just the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the cup and here's your first dose of things to come. The, the first fill of the cup. That's, that's what it was like. I didn't even realize it at the time, but we buried my grandfather. We had the services. I get back to England in time to actually make my deployment window. And again, I'm excited for this because, again, as an infantry guy from 97 to 2000, we're always training for combat and we're always training to respond to the nation's call. But 97 to 2000, I went through all this extensive training and was never able to use any of it, nothing. So here I was, okay, hey, you're going to go be an air advisor. Granted, it's not glorious and guns and bullets and blowing up things, but I was going to be able to deploy. That was my thing. And I was going to be able to feel some satisfaction and bring all these attributes and all this training that I had to do something, to give back for the country. So I was looking forward to that. And I get back in time to actually make my deployment window. So then I wind up getting back and two days later, I deploy to Afghanistan. And what was that like? The deployment in Afghanistan as an air advisor, that was, <laughs> it was the most unique, crazy, fun, and psychotically weird, like you can't even make it up. Like they should make a mass version of a TV show of it or something <laughs> because it was the strangest thing when I show up there and I literally see an Afghan Air Force troop on the helicopter 
literally a rock and a red rag wrapped around the rock and he's banging on a bolt trying to get a bolt to go in the hole and it was i i felt like i had gone back in time to the <laughs> army air corps slash stone age it was crazy but it was also great because it was a challenge and it was like okay i can bring some stuff to help and I can actually not change how they do things, but I can show them, hey, here's a hammer that might make it go faster. Or, hey, here's this other tool that, by the way, we're giving you the assets. Let me show you how to use these assets now to employ them and to make you more efficient so you don't have to stay up all day in the heat and you can do this quickly and we can get it done. Yeah, it was amazing. So overall, it was a good experience for you. It was Probably my favorite year in the military by far. Yeah. That 365 deployment was the best year of my military career. What made it your favorite year? Part of the Air Advisor mission, and this is my take on it, staff and everybody gives direction to, hey, we need to get these Afghans learning, or we need to get these locals or this other country. We need to get them learning how to use this equipment to help their country become stable or whatever. And that's the direction that's given to the air advisors. It's not a direct, you will do this, you will do this, you will train them this way, you will train them this way. It's up to the air advisor to then to be out there with the individuals to see, okay, these guys actually, if I talk with them and joke a little bit with them in the morning and have tea with them for an hour, even though to us in the Western civilization, we may think an hour of tea, that's wasted time. That's wasted money. Mm -hmm. But an hour of tea then turns around and makes them more productive in the afternoon or the noontime than I could ever have achieved if I would have told them, hey, I want to skip your tea and I want to just get to work. Mm. And I liked being able to work with people to develop their skills the way they needed. The mission wasn't necessarily about how the Air Force needs to make this successful. It's how they needed to make it successful, mm -hmm. which was fascinating and exciting. And you were able to be successful in that. Yes. We helped them in their first voting, democratic voting process. It was awesome to see that. We helped them in one of the highest times of combat times there. It was amazing. And then we actually brought on how our training records are in maintenance to, hey, here's how you can document your guys and your individuals to document, hey, if you see that they're signed off on this stuff and these tasks, then you know you can hold them accountable and you can tell them to go do the job. And we started bringing all that online while I was there. And it was very neat to see. One of the reasons that I ask is I feel like a lot of individuals who have served will have very similar sentiment, which is the deployment six months or deployment year has been the most rewarding part of their career. And maybe that's because they felt a sense of meaning or purpose uh, that they fulfilled. And they felt this is why they've enlisted. This is why they got commissioned to do this job. So it sounds like that's what you've experienced as well. It felt meaningful to you. Yeah. That Air Advisor deployment was the culmination where I could bring all my skills as a jet engine troop, as an Air Force airman, as a prior Army infantry guy, 
as a U.S. citizen, I could bring all those skills now to that focal point and help these people and develop them. Right. Now you deployed, and then what happens next? I know that there's more to come. Oh, yes. There's always more. So while I was deployed, I was out on the flight line on Kandahar. We were on the west end of Kandahar, and it was basically the Afghan ramp out there. And it was awkward because we wound up having some, like, they almost sounded like hailstones hitting the large hangar that we in because the hangar that we had at the time out there on the Afghan side, it was just a metal covered hangar. There was no insulation pieces or nothing, no scaffolding inside. It was just a random metal hangar. So we heard these, what sounded like hail. And for me, I was out there in April of 2013 when we had one of the most hellacious hailstorms that just grounded 90% of the fleet on Kandahar. So I figured this was just another random hailstorm that was showing up from nowhere. The next thing I know is all of us air advisors, we carry a radio on our hip and I hear over the radio, shelter in place. And I'm like, what's going on? I mean, my first reaction is what's going on? Because again, shelter in place. Yes, I will. But what's going on? Where do I need to shelter? Is the hangar the best place? Are rockets coming in? Do we need to go to a more hardened shelter or whatever? And we still don't know. We just keep hearing shelter in place. I go back to our office at the time and a little more info hits and shelter in place, shots fired. And then we finally start hearing that. And I'm like, okay, now bullets are going. So myself and another individual that I'm with, we realized there's still air advisors out on the ramp. And if there's shots being fired, then we need to get in the Humvee, the at least minimal armored Humvee that we have, and roll out there and get them and get them up to safety. We jump in the Humvee, we get out there, we get our U.S. assets, our U.S. airmen, we get a Ukrainian air advisor at the time. He was out there with us. And we get as many people as we can, and we just throw them in the Humvee, and then we head back to the office where at least we can kind of shelter in place, and it's a secure door, and we can lock it and everything. And after that happens, we all get in the shelter, radio still blowing up with traffic. At that time, I could literally tell, looking back, I went from being an airman back to an infantry guy because my infantry training just kicked in. I react to contact. That's what we do. We were trained to do. And so I literally gear up, I grab everything I can. I've got my vest, my M4, M9s loaded, rounds are ready. I've actually got an extra bottle of water and I'm ready to go. And I keep healing this shelter in place. Nobody move, shelter in place, nobody move. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like, there needs to be some more traffic. Like, please, like, inform, like, we're ready to go. Yes, we are air advisors and yes, we should shelter in place, but we need to react. My instinct inside me was we need to react. Just don't hide, react to the situation. You felt like you didn't have enough information and the yeah, messages were um, ambiguous. Yeah. And at the same time, my roommate at the time, he was a prior paramedic also. So he was also a little bit on edge because he has this prior paramedic skill. Now he's an electrician, but he has this prior paramedic skill where, hey, I want to help. I'm ready to go. Where do you need me? Where do you need my help at? Mm -hmm. It was chaos. Bottom line, it was just chaos. And it was like this for a good, oh, I can't even remember. I'm not even going to guess. It was a while. 
it was a very uncomfortable while. And then finally, there was our security forces asset advisors that were with us. They had gone over to the Afghan compound from the airfield area. And way before this time, the whole base has gone into lockdown. Active shooter on Kandahar airfield. The whole base is lit up. And our security forces were trying to gain access to where the active shooter was on the Afghan compound, but they were having difficult because, again, when you have a, I believe that's a green on blue shooting incident, Mm -hmm. it's very touchy and it's very fluid. Everything is just chaotic. And the Afghans don't want us to impede on them and we don't want them to do things without us there. And there's just this massive concern and caution, almost sometimes too much caution. Mm -hmm. But our security forces were held up from actually going and clearing the tower where the shots had come from. Once our leadership deemed it necessary that our security forces advisors needed to clear the tower where the shots had come from before any movements or whatever were allowed to include extracting the wounded that had actually been shot. And this is where I just, man, in my, in my head, I was just like, are you kidding me? Like someone takes some command decisions, someone just do it. Like ask for forgiveness later, just do this. It needs to happen. We've got wounded. We've got people shot. Medical ambulances did not want to roll into the area because it was unsecured. So it was just this pausing and pausing and pausing continually going on. And yeah, I I was going nuts a little bit Mm. because it just seemed like inaction going on. And again, we're hearing it on the radio. Finally, our security forces get up there. They clear the tower and the decision was made from leadership to break out from taking cover. Myself and the other individual, my roommate, we kind of cleared some areas and made sure that, okay, yes, there's no other Afghans. There's no other potential of an additional shooting incident happening, that they are all gone. They're all on their Afghan compound. And we can actually focus on getting medical staff in here. We can get help now and then we can exfil the area and turn this over to an investigation or whatever. And it took a while. It it just, man, it, yeah. It took a while. And the coalition wound up losing, I believe it was four, I might be wrong on this, but there was Slovakian KIAs and there was Slovakian wounded in action also. And that sucked. That really sucked. I mean, yeah. As someone who is trained in acting and doing and pushing forward and then having to be forced to not act Mm -hmm. and not be able to push forward and have your skills or assets or your abilities be drawn in because no one knows they're even available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's hit hard. Mm -hmm. It pissed me off. Because you were trained as an infantryman and you felt like you could have been of value. Yeah. And again, we went to the Air Advisor Academy where we have gone through scenarios of this. We have gone through scenario, extensive scenarios of casualty evac, all of this stuff, knowing your people. And then this all kind of fell apart here. And I kind of get it. Combat and war is chaotic. It is always going to happen. When anything breaks out, there's always going to be chaos. Mm-hmm. 
but at the same point, use your people to combat the chaos. And wow, it was tough. Mm -hmm. So that happened. And after that, we didn't allow any Afghan maintainers or pilots. The whole Afghan MI-17 fleet on Kandahar was grounded for three weeks until we re-vetted securely through multiple sources, through our intelligence, the pilots. And then we re-vetted individually the maintainers that were out there. And our intelligence advisors on the ground in Kandahar, they did an outstanding job because they actually wound up finding a few that were, hey, there's some funny stuff here with this individual. We're not going to allow him back to work with the advisors because he has ties to Taliban or Al-Qaeda. So some good, fortunately, did come from it, but it just, mm, it, it sit hard with all of us advisors, that whole scenario. Yeah, sounds like a very frustrating experience for you. And this was a 365 deployment for you. Yeah, I deployed in April and I'd have to look at my notes again, but I think this happened around August time frame. So there's still a ways to go. Mm. <laughs> we came back from that as advisors. We all are very close. We still stay in touch. The Afghan pilots got vetted first and we wound up flying more sorties with seven air advisors maintaining all their MI-17s than the whole Afghan force. I mean, granted, we're experienced. We know how to do our job quickly and efficiently, but it was something of a pride and something of a, we are seven awesome advisors that know maintenance and we can keep these helicopters going and combat effective. And it was great feeling that we just pushed forward. We took a punch on the chin and we kept going. What do you feel, looking back, helped you push forward? Part of it was just pushing the incident to the side. We found out that the individual who shot us with the 240 from the tower, the Afghans caught him. They arrested him. They transported him to Kabul, a detention facility up there that was Afghan-ran. And then some Afghan individual with rank decided to go in, sign him out, and walked him out of the detention facility, and he walked to Pakistan. So I remember that day vividly because we were all in the chow hall on Kandahar, and we saw the news hit, and it just felt like a gut punch to all of us because mm. this individual that literally just committed murder just got set free. It, it was tough. And that day and week, and for a few months, that was tough to deal with. But again, what can you do about it? You can cry about it. You can complain about it. But we had a mission to do. We still had Afghans we needed to transport. We still needed to provide MI-17s to fly the Afghan army to engage the enemy. We still had a fight to win. So that, drawing back on, hey, keep your head on the target. And let's keep the fight going. That helped quite a bit. So refocusing mentally on kind of a bigger purpose? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we did have some visits from the United States leadership, the Air Force leadership, and that helped too. Well, how did that help? Just to let us know that they felt the pain too. Mm. When Air Force, some individuals from 
high-ranking areas come down and say, yeah, that's messed up, literally. And we kind of have that one-on-one, and they actually want to know, hey, okay, this happened, and this shouldn't have happened, but it did. But lessons learned, and what can we do to make it better? We actually had that direct input. You felt validated on some level? Yeah. I don't know if validate is the right word, but yeah, we were being heard. Right. Okay. Like you were heard. You weren't invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that's a good point because for a while there, we thought that we weren't being heard. But yes, we were being heard. The generals did come down and they talked to us. And yeah, they were interested. They wanted to know. Right. And so now you still have time from August until April. So after this, I decided with my 365, I get 15 days of R&R that I was looking forward to, and I wanted to take it towards the end of my deployment. So I wound up scheduling that for the winter time in December, January timeframe. And I decided to tell my family that I was going to take my R&R in Australia when actually I wound up going and flying out to Hawaii, where my brother, who was in the army at the time, was stationed. And I wound up surprising my family out there for my 15 days of TDY. The parents loved it. It was great the first night. First night was on Oahu, and then the second night through the fifth or whatever, we wound up going to the Big Island to Volcano National Park, which is outstanding, beautiful area. I love Hawaii. Oh, (laughs) from Afghanistan to Hawaii? Right, yeah. That was the longest flights and trip of my life but i needed it it was worth it that's interesting i'm you know after i got back from afghanistan i think the same week i went to thailand and it was like the worst mistake that i've done (laughs) going from gray and rocks and sand and dirt to this just lush green yeah blue bright landscape it was a little overwhelming yeah it was an eye shock Right, right, yeah. My color spectrum in the eyeballs was not ready <laughs> right, for right, it. Right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. But yeah, we get out to the Big Island then, and it's just, the Big Island of Hawaii is beautiful because it's just not as tourism-packed, and it's what I feel is real Hawaii. It's just great. And we have dinner in Volcano National Park area, and the National Park is literally in the middle of nowhere. There's hardly any artificial light. At night, you can literally see the glow of the cauldron still spewing volcano, Mm. lava and stuff. It's just a gorgeous area. And you can see stars for, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm taken back a little bit. Mm. And we're finishing up dinner and my mom who was out there, all the concrete and everything was this kind of recycled lava rock. Really neat during the daytime, but at night, it's all black, just like the ground's black. And she missed seeing a curb, and she wound up tripping on the curb. And when she fell, she smashed in her eye socket, and it was like, hello, Afghanistan, all over again. Like I'm like, are you serious? I'm on R&R. Like, this is supposed to be calm and peaceful and some normalcy. And this is the second day of R&R, and this is happening? Seriously? Thankfully, my brother, who has had countless deployments in the Army, he kind of recognized what was going on, and he kind of took the lead. And and he lived in Oahu also, which helped. 
So he helped my mom and everything out, but it was, yeah, it was like, are you kidding me? Here's another thing going on now. Did she lose her eyesight? No, she wound up, my mom's tough. Wow, I'll give her that. She didn't tear up one bit. We joked that when she broke her eye sockets, she broke her tear ducts too. (laughs) But man, she's tough. She just said, wow, it really hurts. It's really sore. (laughs) I remember that. She broke her eye socket? Yeah. And so she wound up going back to Oahu the next morning. They life flighted her out. She got some surgeries, some multiple surgeries months later, and it's returned to normal. It's mm. it's better. Good. But yeah, it was crazy. It was this time of relaxation and, you know, brain dumping time that I felt I had earned and deserved. And honestly, I understand why the military gives 15 days R&R because you need it. Mm-hmm. And now it's cut short with all of this. So my 15 days wound up being dealing with some of that. And I wound up getting at least four days of kind of peace and calm and beach time and whatever. It was better than none. I'll take it. And then I was thrown right back, flew all the way back to Afghanistan and right back in the mix. So that wound up happening. I get back to Afghanistan and as their advisors, you deploy as a single person. So I'll go in April, another guy will show up in June, another one will show up in July or whatever, and it's a constant rotation. And when I got back from my R&R, I just had this callous type of feel of, you know what, you're a new guy, I just don't even want to get to know you right now. Mm -hmm. I don't have time, I don't have the effort, I'm exhausted, Mm -hmm. my brain is done. Yeah, it was weird. It was not me. Mm -hmm. So I get back, I start finishing out things. I remember there was a major there at the time and he sat down two weeks after I had been back from R&R and he asked me how things are going and I I just let it loose. Mm -hmm. And he's like, just kind of jaw dropped, like, what? What are you doing to be okay? Or what what are you mm-hmm. are you okay? Mm-hmm. Like and I was like What did you do to be okay? I've just kept okay, let's hit the gym, let's just keep pushing. I mean, I'm in Afghanistan. There's not a and Kandahar and other than the boardwalk that was shutting down at the time and we'd take our little times for hey, we can go have chai tea together as a group of advisors and we're gonna at least celebrate that thirty minutes or hour of our time. I mean, that's what we did. How did you explain it to yourself in your own words? Like what was kind of your mental process of coping with now kind of succession of traumas? Just keep going. That's all my brain kept telling to itself is keep going. Like I'm not at the finish line or nowhere near the finish line of things happening. Just keep going. Mm -hmm. The whole just (laughs) embrace the suck. Keep pushing. It's, It's not done yet. Mm-hmm. Don't deal with it yet. Don't deal with anything yet. Just mm-hmm. keep going. That's where my brain was. Did you feel there would be a light at the end of the tunnel? My light at the end of the tunnel was, at the time, it was kind of, it, it might sound demented, but waking up the next day or just finishing the work the next day and then, hey, I'm off and now we can go and have this little bit of success of coffee time or Mm -hmm. we can go play some pool for a little bit. Mm -hmm. That was my light at the end of the tunnel. So I was literally almost taking it day by day to go through it. 
by no means is that the healthiest way to do it, but it's just... No, it is. You're focusing in the moment and you're being present. It's how I did it. And it got me a little short-sighted. You know, maybe I could have become better friends with people towards the end of my deployment, but it got me through it. It got me to finish what I came there to do. Mm. And then I, in April of 2014, I returned from deployment back to Lake and Heath and with very, very, very little fanfare and almost as if my squadron had forgotten me, Mm. which, yeah, that was interesting. As in that was painful? Yeah. I wasn't expecting, hey, you're welcomed home and here is hero and parade. No, I didn't want any of that. But, you know, hey, welcome back. High five, bro hug or whatever. You know, that that would have been kind of cool. But it was, oh, Dave's back. Cool. Mm-hmm. Go sign in real quick. Mm-hmm. Felt like you didn't count. Yeah, it felt like literally I wasn't even gone. Like literally I hadn't even done anything. <laughs> Almost to the point of, did the year that I just do serve or do anything wasn't even purposeful. Mm -hmm. Looking back, heck yeah, it was purposeful. But at that point, I questioned it. It bugged me. It it was annoying. Mm -hmm. And then... (laughs) And then after all this craziness... You know, the the typical, I kept filling my cup of water and it kept filling up, filling up, filling up. And then I never let it drain or everything. And finally I had that overflowing point and I, I remember it vividly. I was so happy that day to go to the BX at Lake and Heath and I got a caramel macchiato Starbucks coffee and I was walking out and it just hit me like a freight train. and like all the compounded stress and issues and everything from the last year and a half or whatever, it just hit hard. And I remember walking out of that BX and like I started shaking, I started tearing up and crying and I'm just like, what the heck's going on? Mm. And right across from the Lake and Heath BX is the chapel, uniquely enough. (laughs) And I remember just, well, the chapel's right there. Heck, it, let's just go over and see if the chaplain's in the office or whatever and, and dump on him or whatever. And I walked over there, never been in the chapel before over there, and walked in there and somehow found the chaplain's office. And he was actually in and continued to... For like a good half hour, I couldn't even talk. Like it just, yeah. Are you religious? Yeah, yeah, I was raised religious. And I still rely on that on a lot of things. Rely on your faith? Yeah. I've, traveling around the world, my faith or my religious idea has broadened so massively that I don't, like I believe in God and everything, but I don't hold a certain religion or anything over one or the other, you know? Mm -hmm. But 
here was someone who maybe in my subconscious or whatever, I remembering in some brief that, Hey, if you have problems, go talk to the chaplain. And my feet took me over there and sat me down there. And I just broke down right there. Mm. Was that helpful? It was helpful. It was also unique because the chaplain also happened to have done an advisor mm -hmm. time in his career. And he was also prior enlisted. I remember that. So there was some relation there. You could relate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you like that? It was helpful. Did I like it? I think so. I'm not really sure. I'd have mm -hmm. to think about that one. But I think it did open the avenue of, okay, listen, like he's at least deployed. He knows what right. he's talking about. Right. There's validity in what he's saying. Right. He's just not a brand new lieutenant from the academy that is here mm -hmm. saying his checklist what items or whatever. To say, right. He was yeah. real. Yeah. yeah. Very real. And he helped me out. He let me calm down, gave me some resources, and then recommended, hey, you need to it's time to go see mental health right now. Like mm. you need to go do it. Mm. So this is the morning time. And I wound up going right after that over to the mental health clinic area at Lake and Heath. And I remember going in there requesting to see someone and they're like, well, what's the problem? Do you have an appointment? All this stuff. I know. I just need to see someone now. I'd like, I'm having some issues. And again, it was very different because as an advisor, it's not a regular deployment. You don't deploy as a unit. You deploy as an individual. Mm -hmm. So when you come back as an individual, you're improcing the base as an individual. So people are looking at you like, you went where? You did what? It's almost like you're, you're a different entity almost. Mm -hmm. They just don't understand it. There is no sense of belonging yeah. to the unit. Uh, yeah. You don't belong to anybody. There's no one over your shoulder for a checklist of, hey, did you go see mental health in doctor? Did you see a post PHA health assessment? Did you do this checklist? There's none of that. It's you. Right. So I'm coming in there and asking them and they're like, oh, well, you haven't had any deployers come back. And I'm like, I'm an advisor. I came back four days ago. What do you mean you haven't had any deployers come back? So I got my appointment. They did see me that day and <laughs> I got mad because the reply at me at the time was, well, you're due to PCS this next month in May. So there's not anything we can really do to you or do for you. Go ahead and see mental health at your next location. And I was just kind of like, are you serious? this is the best you can do. Like you're an officer. You guys are the experts on this. And I was floored. I couldn't believe it. So it was not a good experience for you. Yeah. Not the greatest not start. Not the greatest experience. <laughs> Did you end up PCSing or? Yeah. So I, I PCSed in May. The month before you PCSed, what was that like when you kind of didn't end up getting help that you needed? There wasn't any. Yeah. So they did say that, well, you're PCSing, and I'm paraphrasing. There's no use in getting us started on everything here when you're going to PCS and move somewhere else, and then they're going to have to start all over again. Yeah. And at the time, that pissed me off, but I get it. So I get back April, and towards the end of May, 
I start PCSing to my new station. And when I get to my new base, I'm literally moving in. I'm doing other things. I have some mountains here around me with some green grass and beautiful trees and hiking that I'm going to actually take advantage of and enjoy some me time. So I've literally pushed the whole mental health thing down the road a ways. I didn't even see them until like August that year. And when I did go in and see them, it was good initially, because initially I didn't know what to expect, what to do. You know, when I'm reaching for a branch, you could hand me a twig and I'd be happy. You know, it's something. Mm -hmm. So I was going with it. At the same point, I was also getting all my health and other things finished and taken care of. And I found that, oh, I needed a new echocardiogram because I had this heart murmur that's been monitored since 2008. And so I went and did that. And then the hospital's like, oh, you have a hole in your heart. And I'm like, there's no way I have a hole in my heart. I'm a healthy 38-year-old male at the time. And I passed PT tests and I did a deployment and all this other stuff. There's no way I have a hole in my heart. Like, you're, you're crazy. So I get follow-ups for that. And it winds up being some weird heart condition that they've never even documented before. And that leads me down to get a heart surgery to fix the leaking heart, two leaking heart valves. And again, the mental health piece got pushed a little more now. So you have two heart surgeries? So my first heart surgery was to fix the aortic and mitral valve. They had a tendinate cordae that was actually linking both of them. So it was seesawing the valves, never allowing for a complete pump of the left ventricle. So I would just get a kind of a, you open the end of a balloon when it's fully full and squeeze it. That's what I was getting. I wasn't getting a full pump feel out of it. And I couldn't tell any difference. I felt okay, but I also felt like I was getting tired all the time. Mm -hmm. So the doctors and I decided, okay, well, maybe I'm at that edge of the cliff where it's time to get the surgery or it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. So I get the surgery. I start going through recovery. I get the flu and then that exacerbates the recovery process. And I wound up getting a pericardial infusion and they wind up life flighting me back to the same hospital. And they drain a half a gallon of fluid from around my heart. And then I finally start recovering and things start getting better. And I'm on my own doing this recovery because I'm a single person. And I'm in a remote location out at Holloman Air Force Base. And so I start doing it all on my own. I start busting my butt to get back in shape because I'm thinking to myself, you know what? They can't med board me if I can pass a PT test. Maybe that was stupid thinking at the time, but I start just concentrating on, you know what? My goal is to pass a PT test. And then I finally get back in shape after the two surgeries. And by the end of that year, I wind up passing my PT test with almost a 90%. And I'm feeling good. And then come to find out they med board me that following January or February or something like that, because I have all these weird surgeries in the systems and through the review of medical records, they find, hey, there's this person with weird conditions. We need to review this and run it through the process. So I wound up passing the med board and returned to service with a code to continually follow up my treatments. And about that time is when I kind of revisited the mental health thing, because again, talking to my brother, 
with all his deployments and all his stuff that he had going on, he was like, you should just go and talk to someone. Mm -hmm. So I went and talked to someone again. It just didn't feel right. Like I felt like instead of the patient, I felt like I was the person in the couch and the doctor was the person on the couch. Why is that? Like, it's just because the location that I was at has been seeing so many cases or whatever is workloads are massive. I don't know. I'm not sure, but it had that feel to it. And so I kind of blew off the mental health thing a little bit. Didn't take it too seriously. And then I went back again and there was a different doctor and that one went okay. Kind of the same thing. I feel like he's complaining to me more than I am to him. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm like, "Uh, this is just not working. Like, let's go back to the mountains and hike and do me time and concentrate on me and go to the gym and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And maybe a physically fit system will be a mentally fit system. I don't know. And finally I went back again after it kind of hit a boiling point and I got someone that it kind of clicked with and he's like, okay, we actually need to maybe put you on some medication and some other stuff. And let's actually talk, no kidding about you and what's going on. And I was like, okay, this is actually weird. Someone wants to talk about me for once. It's kind of nice. Okay. And looking back, I don't hold that against the mental health professionals because they're all human too. And it's not as much as you go to a mental health provider and they should have all the answers. They might not have all the right answers. It might be a different doctor that's going to have the right answers, or it's just going to be a different person that you get along with. And I've told people since then, you know, if you're not happy with mental health then go back and ask for a different mental health doctor or ask for a different provider or something, just don't give up on it. But we're all people. We all make mistakes. We're not perfect. But really, when I look back at it, that's kind of what I did in a very long fashion to finally get to where I had someone who was, okay, I get what you're saying and I'm listening to you and okay, we need to do this with you. Mm -hmm. And it actually wound up helping. I finally started sleeping, which was great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wasn't having lucid dreams for like, 10 days straight and being so exhausted that, you know, I needed five cups of coffee just before work. Mm. I was down to two cups of coffee before work, which was great. That was progress. Yeah. So at some point you get enrolled into the Wounded Warrior Project. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So I was enrolled in the Air Force Wounded Warrior Project after I'd actually passed my medical board and I was enrolled through kind of a referral. There was a friend of mine at the same base, and she mentioned, why aren't you going to Warrior Games or these Invictus Games and stuff like that? Like, you're you're killing it at the gym. You're doing all this crazy stuff. You need to be part of this. And I'm like, okay, but I'm not, like, blown up. I don't have combat limbs missing the typical mm-hmm. wounded warrior concept. And she's like, oh, man, just go talk to this guy. And he was the recovery care coordinator at Holloman. And okay, I reached out and talked to him. And he's like, yeah, come on in and talk. And we talked a little bit. He got my background and story and stuff. And from there, he sent the package to the medical experts that Air Force Wounded Warrior has. And 
they said you more than qualify and we need you in this program and you need to be part of this or whatever. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to an event, Mm -hmm. a care event. And I wound up going to the joint base Lewis McCord event in 2016. As a participant? As a participant. Yes. So what did you do? It blew my mind. I showed up there and I mean, what was your sport? I got exposed to all the sports. I got exposed to wheelchair basketball for the first time. I got exposed to sitting volleyball, to air rifle, which I love because I'm a grunt at heart and I love shooting guns, archery, running track, all that stuff. And then I got exposed to people that couldn't run that were put in racing chairs. If you can't use your legs, then use your arms. Keep going forward. The bottom line of it was keep moving forward. Mm-hmm get up and move, do something. And I remember the theme of that care event was invisible to invincible. Mm. And they actually had t-shirts at that time and I still have it. And it's true. Like I literally went from being kind of this statistically numbered person to somebody again. And it felt good. Yeah. It felt like this is what recovery maybe should feel like. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite sport? Oh, favorite sport. Oh, goodness. I'd have to say recurve archery because... What is recurve archery? So recurve archery is the big Robin Hood bows, not the compound bows. And the siding is different. You literally have to use your fingers. There's no little fancy trigger on the bow when you pull it. It's, it's difficult. And it's It's like the very ancient art of archery. Yes. And it's a practice thing. You have to be patient with you and you have to be methodical. It's down to your stance, your breathing, how you're pulling the bow every time. There's so many facets that you have to repeat exactly the same time to get the exact same shot every time. So did you train for it specifically when you went there or? No, I, I just tried it at the events and... I wound up being pretty decent with it because, again, I love that kind of methodical, just side in and breathe and shut everything out. I enjoy that. So I wound up enjoying that sport and I tried out. I went to the Air Force trials in 2017 and shot pretty good. And I made the alternate team for the Air Force team for the 2017 Warrior Games. But being a open category person that I am, I have full ability of my limbs and stuff. I wasn't able to fill one of their open categories because they had too many, which is fine at the time. I was happy to be chosen as an alternate. I was blown away, mm-hmm. especially first attempt ever. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I wound up still staying in shape. I wound up still staying in contact with the organization. And a little later that year, One of the staff members of the Air Force Wounded Warrior program knew that I love photography and asked if I had any photos to submit for an art project. And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't know what art project you're looking for, but here's four photos I have. And I sent them up. And later in April of 2017, I got a call from him saying, hey, by the way, the Pentagon is inviting you out for the opening of the Wounded Warrior Healing Arts Exhibit. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the what? The Pentagon? It just blew me away. So you were among 
20 other warriors throughout the entire DOD to have the privilege to do that. Yeah. It was an amazing event. There was 20 warriors up there. Not all of them could attend, but there was about 20 submissions. And they had the displays hanging in the hallway. And it wasn't in a closet corner hallway. This was in a hallway where VIPs and just off the parking lot of the Pentagon where major people with influence come walking through this hallway on a daily basis, walk through this area. It was very strategically located, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was, wow, it blew me away. It was also neat to see that there was organizations out there that it's not necessarily just about the adaptive sports or it's not just about the physical recovery. It's about the mental recovery, the mental toughness or grit, as you say. You know, it's, it's about being mentally fit. It was awesome. What does it mean to be mentally fit? In Dave's book. In Dave's book, Mentally Fit. I have to say that or explain it. I have to say that it's not an easy one click or a, it's not an easy app kind of thing. It literally took... But can I do a CBT on that? <laughs> it, it, no, I, well, maybe. <laughs> we haven't invented it yet. But it literally took my training as an infantry guy and an air advisor academy the SEER classes that I went through and all this other stuff. It was a combined training of all of that stuff that made me mentally tougher or mentally stronger to endure that messed up long process. It wasn't any one thing. It was a combined thing. Because by having all that combined stuff, I was able to actually fall back on something here I learned back in the army, or I learned this in advisor school, I learned this in seer school, I learned this somewhere else. I was able to kind of tailor, hey, I need to fall back on something because I've got an issue going on. I was able to fall back on those multiple avenues to help out. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense that your experiences, your life experiences have taught you to be mentally tough. What do you think about those service members who are maybe younger and don't have as much experience as you do, and they haven't been through CR school or, you know, airborne training that you have been and haven't been an infantryman or advisors to Afghan National Army. So if I'm 22 and I'm working in the jet and I'm a maintainer, what makes me mentally tough? Even though you may be young, some of it is still going to rely, I think, on your experience because you're always going to fall back on kind of that experience or that knee-jerk reaction of what you've had before. But also to get grittier, to condition your mind, you got to talk about it. You got to face it. What do you mean by that? You've got to... There's part of it that I still push to do today. I've gotten better at it, but I still hey, this is a problem. Like I'm driving here to this podcast and for some random reason, I'm just tearing up. Like what the hell's going on? Okay. Instead of condemning yourself for tearing up or whatever, just accept that you're tearing up and say, okay, why am I tearing up? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I can get down to the root of why then. Okay. Did what, you figure out when you tear it up? Um, this one today, I think it was just nervousness. <laughs> okay. Becoming aware that there's a problem Naming a problem. Yeah. And, and not shaming yourself for yeah. having a problem or having a reaction to yeah. it. Yeah. 
I mean, we all got issues. We're all human. Yeah. We're, there is not one perfect human out there. Yeah. And there is no quick fix. I mean, there's quick fixes, but they're not going to last. Yeah. The good fixes are the ones that actually take some work, if that makes sense. What is work? Work to me is, like I said, you got to face it. You got to realize, hey, okay, this sucks. For example, the ride over here, I'm tearing up for no reason. And probably the hardest problem is, you know, once in a while looking in that rear view mirror and being like, hey, I'm still Dave. I'm still the same person. Mm -hmm. It's just another something's going on. I just keep thinking of the Joe Dirt. Keep on keeping on. But no, the. Uh, I guess I'd have to say when it gets tough and when you're down to that problem that is just unsolvable, because we all have the unsolvable problems sometimes, it's okay to reach out. You're not always going to have the best answer for you. Mm the best answer for you is possibly within you, but it may take some friends. It may take some colleagues. It may take some coworkers. It may take some professionals to help talk to and to help bring out that, okay, yeah, that actually is going to work for me because now that's my solution for what I need is what we're discussing. Because mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer and we have within us an innate power to help ourselves, we just kind of need some help finding it. Yeah. Friends, family, everybody. And if you don't have friends and family and a good support, you got to go and talk to someone. You got to go and talk to your supervisor. You got to talk. If they shoot you down, it's just like my mental health professionals. If they shoot you down, then go to a different supervisor. Mm -hmm. If they shoot you down, then go to a different one. You know, just don't give up because someone said no to you. I mean, they're not perfect either. They have mm. issues also. We're all dealing with issues these days. But you will land on that one person where it's like, hey, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Try this. Right, right. Eventually you'll connect to somebody who gets you. Yeah. But the most difficult part, I think, is being able to accept, you know what, you're going to hear no once or twice. You're going to hear it. But just don't give up because you hear no. Don't accept that answer. Don't accept that. Yeah. Go back and fight. This is your life. Go back and fight for it. Yeah. That's very helpful. Retired mass surgeon Dave Lawn from San Antonio. This is episode 20 of the Blue Grid Podcast. Thank you so much for coming out and talking to me. Thank you very much. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance you are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.